Welcome to The Word at First Pres. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be doing a short two-sermon sermon series on Choose Love, Be the Light, Change the World, our tagline that we repeat at First Pres after every service. I hope you enjoy. Now let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading coming from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is the greatest commandment, including the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you watched last week, you are probably aware that we're doing something rather unusual. We are doing a two-sermon sermon series, which, as I said last week, I'm not sure if that's actually a thing, if you can just do two sermons in a row and that's a series, but that's what we're doing. And this particular sermon series is based off of a conversation that I had with the leadership of our church, the elders, about two years ago. And we were sitting around our big table, there were 21 of them, in our boardroom, and I said, maybe it would be a good time for us to go to you all, the congregation, and ask you how you feel the mission of the church is going. 
And one of the elders piped up and said, well, Alex, I don't know if it makes much sense to do that because I'm not sure most of the congregation even knows what the mission of the church is. And then he said, you know, I'm an elder. I don't even know what the mission of the church is. And a lot of elders around the table agreed with him. And so I said, well, what about choose love, be the light, change the world? Isn't that the mission of our church? And another elder chimed in and said, well, Alex, that's a tagline, not a mission. And a number of elders agreed. Now, I have to admit, I was a bit taken aback by this because I realized that they were right. If the elders sitting around that table, who are some of the most dedicated people to our community, don't know what the mission of the church is, then clearly I can't expect you all to know what that is. And on top of it, what I've been saying is the mission of the church for all these years, choose love, be the light, change the world. That actually has not been getting across to you. The connection between those words and that being the mission of the church, that hasn't been happening. And so after some self-reflection, I realized that I had no one to blame except for myself because I'm the one who has to communicate that. Sure, we talked about it five years ago when we adopted this tagline, but I can't expect you all to remember that that's what it was all about. And so this sermon series, these two sermons, are an attempt to rectify the situation. Now, these two sermons are not the only time I'm going to do this. Clearly, I'm going to need to do it again and again into the future. But what I really want you all to understand is how Choose Love, Be the Light, Change the World does represent the Christian mission and why it is the focal point of what we're trying to do here at First Pres. So to begin with, I want to go back to this graphic that I showed you all last week. This graphic is something that shows you what Choose Love, Be the Light, Change the World is in a graphical format. And you'll see at the top that what it says is creating God's kingdom or creating the kingdom. And the idea behind this is that in Mark chapter 1, these are the first words that Jesus speaks. He tells us that the kingdom of God has come near, and so his job is to create the kingdom here on earth. Now, what you can see in this is that as we create the kingdom, there are two separate paths that we have to walk down in order to create the kingdom. These paths both nurture and are important to helping one another. So you need to do both of them. And that is soul work and social work. You can see that's where they both go down to. Now, we talked about soul work last week. What is soul work? Soul work is the internal transformation we go through to become more like Jesus. I explained last week that essentially there are two aspects of soul work. There's the transformation you go through in your heart where you become more connected to God and the transformation you go through in your mind to change your thinking. So you have to have both of those elements, the heart and the mind. At the core of this is the need for sacrifice. If you are going to do soul work, you have to be willing to sacrifice. And this is what I refer to as the resurrected life. So you have to go through a death and resurrection which is you have to kill off those parts of yourself that are selfish and not willing to serve other people, and you have to let something new and selfless rise in its place. And so when you do that, you will be like Jesus. You will have gone through a resurrection to become an entirely new person. Now, this internal transformation is actually really important to the creation of God's kingdom, because in God's kingdom, you're supposed to focus on the needs of other people. 
that's really critical. And so if you are focused only on yourself, on your wants, needs, and desires, then you're going to have a tough time contributing to the creation of God's kingdom. So soul work is really about changing your mentality. It's about being willing to sacrifice for the benefit of other people so that you have the ability to make positive contributions to the kingdom of God on earth. So that's soul work in a nutshell. And there's this wonderful equation that you can think of, which is that essentially the more you are willing to be selfless, the more you are willing to sacrifice, the more effective your social work will be. And that's what our focus is today. We're going to look at social work. Now, the same thing with soul work. Social work actually has two components to it. The first component has to do with Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is the text where Jesus tells us that his disciples are to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, care for the sick, visit those who are in prison. You've heard me preach about this a lot over the years, and it's really a focal point of our congregation. The goal of Matthew 25 is to bring balance to a world that is highly imbalanced. So the way our world works right now is that a minority of people have a majority of the wealth, and a majority of the people struggle to get by. And so what Jesus asked his disciples to do is to take their resources and distribute them to the people who are in need. In particular, Jesus wants us to focus on those who are most impoverished and have trouble caring for themselves. But Jesus wants us to do more than simply to give a dollar to the guy on the street corner who's begging for change. That is a band-aid on the problem. Sure, you giving him that dollar will help him to eat for that day, but really Jesus wants us to change the society. He wants us to go to the source of the problem. And so in this way, what we have to remember is that if you're going to change the source, you have to start looking at things on a much broader scale. You have to back up to look at it. So you need to start asking the question, why is this man homeless? Why can't he care for himself? And then you're looking at issues like mental illness and addiction. You're also stepping back and you're looking at how our society impacts other people, the systems that are in place, systems that are broken, some systems that are unjust. And we have to work to fix those things. Now, why is it that we are called to do this? We are called to do this because of what you heard TC read today in Mark chapter 11. This is the text that we read on Palm Sunday. So we read this only a few weeks ago. It's the same text, but it's really important for what we're dealing with today. Let me give you a little bit of backdrop to the Mark 11 text. So you have to remember that when Jesus was alive, there was a lot of social upheaval, particularly around the time of his ministry. So the economy was in free fall. People were losing their homes, their jobs, their land. It was a bad time. And the reason why this was happening is because they were under the thumb of the Roman government. And the higher-ups in the Roman government, they made some really poor economic decisions that had negatively impacted everyone around the empire, not just the Jewish people. Now, as a result, the government was having trouble finding funds to operate, and so what they did was they greatly inflated their tax rates. So, at that time, and their scholars, they disagree about this, but some scholars estimate that the tax rate could be as high as 90%. So, if you caught 10 fish, that means that they would be taking nine from you, and when you don't make that much money to begin with, 
That's a really hard hit to take. On the other hand, you also have the fact that the Roman government could be violently brutal. Any type of resistance to what they wanted would be met with a violent backlash. And so when it comes to the people who Jesus spent his time with, the peasants, most of these people, they had no way of really being able to change their circumstances. They really struggled to be able to do that. They couldn't just go out and change what they were doing. They were kind of stuck. And so if they wanted change, they had to get together in mass and go to a leader and request a change. And of course, when they did this, if they worked for the Roman government, that meant that likely they weren't going to listen. And they'd call in soldiers in the army and they'd have, they they'd break up the crowds. And if they didn't go away, then they would use force and violence against them. And so For many people living at that time, they felt that Rome was the source of many of the problems that they were dealing with. They were the source of the oppression. And probably there was no greater symbol of that oppression than the temple in Jerusalem. So the temple in Jerusalem is a very important place to the Jewish people because it's where they would go in order to worship God and sacrifice animals. Now, as you can see in this picture, Right there, when you walk in, that's where you would go in in order to purchase animals to sacrifice. Because if you read in the Old Testament, you would need to do that in order to be forgiven by God. You had to have a priest sacrifice an animal on your behalf. But you couldn't just bring your own animal because it had to be a very specific type of animal. So you would have to purchase it there in the courtyard. And so this was big business. And of course, the priests who ran the temple, they took a chunk of the money that would go through every transaction. They got some of that money. And so, as a result, there was a lot of corruption, and the priests themselves had been installed by Rome. They were loyal to Rome's interests. They had been vetted by Rome. And so, really, the, the, the temple had become this symbol of corruption in Jewish society. And so, when Jesus goes to the temple in order to overturn the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifices, he's trying to root out that corruption. He believes that if he can get rid of Rome's influence, then he can stop the oppression that is causing the suffering of his people. Now, this example that Jesus provides for us on Palm Sunday, this is actually a really important example to us because what it tells us is that we need to do what he does. Wherever we live, we have to find the Jerusalem temples in our midst, those systems of oppression that are hurting other people. And like Jesus, we have to walk up to those things and we have to say, this is unjust, this has to stop, and we need to find a new way forward. And so in this way, what you see is that when we're talking about social work, there are two elements to it. There's the element of Matthew 25, which is kind of the distribution of resources, making sure that's all even. And then you have Mark 11, where you are looking at the various systems of society and you're trying to correct those that are broken and unjust so that everybody has an equal playing field. Now, in order for us to do social work, you kind of have to be selfless, particularly if, you know, to give away your resources and to do what's being talked of in Mark 11. Because remember what I talked about last week, there's this voice in the back of our minds that's constantly speaking to us. That voice is always there. It's primal. And that primal voice is saying, hey, don't go out there. Don't get involved in other people's problems. You worry about you. You stay safe. 
It's about you, and don't get involved in these issues because, frankly, you could end up getting hurt. So what I told you you have to do is you have to get rid of that voice, you have to sacrifice it, you have to kill it off, and that will allow you to live out your social work. So that's social work in a nutshell. Now, if we go back to this graphic that I was talking about earlier, now what you see is, is that once you go from social work and soul work, you end up having to go down towards love because both of these are rooted in love. And of course, the love that we're talking about is the love of the greatest commandment, which is what we spoke of this morning. And the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what you may have noticed is that both soul work and social work are in the greatest commandment. So at the heart of soul work is the need to love God and at the heart of social work is the need to love your neighbor. So it requires a lot of love if we are going to be able to create God's kingdom. If you don't have love, you can't do it. So these two things go hand in hand. Love and the kingdom, they're very important when they go together. But there's something also very brilliant about the greatest commandment, which is that it shows us that if we're going to properly love we have to be able to overcome an important element, which is that we have to be able to love ourselves. And very often we struggle with this. We are not very good at loving ourselves. This is not something that comes naturally to us. Most people have trouble liking themselves, let alone loving themselves properly. And so what's interesting is that in the greatest commandment, it gives us a sense of how you can love yourself, and that is being open to God's love. So let's talk about that for a second. What is God's love? Now, God's love, according to the way we think about it, is unconditional love. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced truly unconditional love from a person. Maybe you've experienced it from an animal, like dogs will love you unconditionally, they're wonderful. But if you've ever had it from a person, it's a wonderful thing because Basically, it's limitless forgiveness and limitless understanding. And this has an interesting effect on us personally. When you really encounter unconditional love, it changes you because it enables you to feel loved. It takes those broken parts of you and it heals you and it makes you whole. And so by experiencing or opening yourself to God's unconditional love, you learn how to love yourself. And once you learn how to love yourself, that's when you learn how to love your neighbor, which is easier said than done. Because when we think about loving our neighbor, everybody's like, oh yeah, no, I can love my neighbor. Well, that's one thing if your neighbor is somebody who you like, if it's somebody who looks like you, acts like you, thinks like you, like, of course you're going to be able to love your neighbor. But if your neighbor is somebody who is very different from you, somebody who you disagree with, somebody who you don't like, loving your neighbor can be quite difficult. And this is what the parable of the Good Samaritan is really all about. So the parable of the Good Samaritan, it starts off with two enemies. We're talking about the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. They would actually fight against each other. They would wage, wage battles against each other. So they have this long history where they don't like one another. And so what happens is there's a Jewish man who is left for dead on the side of the road. And this Samaritan comes along and he sees this man who is dying. Now, he ends up setting aside all of this animosity and he ends up taking this Jew, he puts him on his animal and he brings him to an end. He cares for his illnesses. 
and he helps to get him better. And then when he has to leave, he tells the innkeeper, hey, take care of him here, and I'll pay for any expenses that you might incur while caring for this man. Now, if we were to take this idea and update it, here's what I would say. You're walking down the road, and you see off on the side in the ditch Osama bin Laden. He's beaten and left half dead. Now, of course, Osama bin Laden, he's the head of Al-Qaeda, or was the head of Al-Qaeda, and he's responsible for more than 3,000 deaths from 9-11. There's a lot of animosity between Americans and Osama bin Laden. So you find him. Are you going to help him? Are you going to pick him up and take him to the hospital and care for him as much as you can? Most people would say, no, I have no intention of doing that. But that's exactly what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. It's setting aside that animosity, setting aside that hate, setting aside your differences, and treating that person like a human being. So in this way, what you have to realize is that what Jesus is asking of us is that love is a choice. It's very important. When Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, these things are not natural to our way of being. You have to make an active decision if you're going to love in the way that Jesus is talking about. It has to be very intentional. It takes a lot of work and effort on your part. And so this is why the first part of our tagline is choose love. Because it's not just any love. You have to choose to love the way that Jesus asks you to love. Now, if you do go down that road and you do choose to love the way that Jesus asks you to love, then a natural consequence of this is that you are going to attempt to endeavor to be able to do engage in social work and soul work. And as a result, you are going to illuminate people in the world through your example. You will be a guiding light to others through your character and through your actions. And so this is why the second part of our tagline is be the light. So if you're doing soul work and social work, you're going to be a light to others. Now, I want to stop here for a second because this is really important to point this out, which is that you cannot have a minority of people in your church doing soul work it just, and social work. It doesn't, it doesn't work if, if only you have a minority of people who are focused on this. And there's actually a really good indicator that your church is moving in the right direction. Because what I have seen in churches that really do soul work and social work really well is that they tend to be a group of people who are not only very welcoming, but loving, inclusive, and diverse. And so what I find is, is that in those churches, any person from any background can come in and be a part of that church and feel that they are a part of it, which is unusual. But when you're working on soul work, you're working on social work, if those are your goals in life, then when people come in to the church who are from the outside, regardless of where they come from, regardless of the background, you're going to be accepting of them. And so when you're in a community that chooses love and is being the light, you're going to see, and we go back to this graphic right here, you're going to see that in the center of that graphic is Christian community. So as a result of doing those two things, you're going to have a very strong Christian community. And this is really important because Although we have to walk the Christian mission as individuals, we do need the support of a community. Last week, I talked about how many Christians will come to me and say, well, Alex, I don't need to be part of a church to be Christian. And you're right, you don't have to be. But being part of a Christian community does make a big 
difference because it gives you support, it gives you encouragement, and most importantly, when you're trying to live the resurrected life and live out Jesus' teachings, it allows you to put them into practice, to practice them inside these walls, and to take them beyond these walls. So when you are part of a community that is working hard to choose love and to be the light, then all of a sudden, the possibility of creating God's kingdom, that becomes a reality. Because through the collective gifts and talents and efforts of everybody who is in the church, what you see is that everybody working together creates these small incremental changes both inside and outside of the church. Indeed, what you see is that through our collective efforts, we do the last part of the tagline, which is we are able to change the world. And so, what we find is that when you choose to love the way Jesus tells us to love, where you're loving God, loving your neighbor, loving yourself, then you become a light to others by engaging in soul work and social work, which enables us as a community to change the world for the better. Now, just imagine for a moment that every single person who is a Christian, there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world, Imagine if every church took this idea and put it into action. Then all of that small incremental change that we do as a community here, that gets multiplied by every church. And so all of a sudden, that small incremental change becomes a big change, and that's how God's kingdom gets created. That's how we realize the dream that Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 1, where he says, create God's kingdom. So when we say, choose love be the light, change the world. That is the Christian mission. That's why we say it every single week. Yes, it's a tagline, but it's more than a tagline. It represents what we are striving for as Christians. It represents our goals as a community. And everybody really needs to be bought into this idea. Because if you're not striving to choose love in the way that Jesus is asking us to love, if you're not trying to love the way he loved, if you don't really care that much about soul work or social work, if that's not a focus, if you don't care about creating God's kingdom by changing the world, then personally, I kind of think you're missing the entire point of what it means to be a part of this congregation. That's what we are attempting to do here. And so my hope and my prayer for you today is that, you would take these words that we speak at the end of every service very, very seriously. In some ways, I mean, I'm being honest with you, they need to become the focus of your life. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I'm not entirely sure where to start with this, Alex, come and see me. I would love to work it out with you. We can work together to figure this out. But please, whatever you do, please don't leave here today and think to yourself, well, that was nice. What are we going to go eat for lunch? Like, I don't want you to do that. I want you to ask yourself, what do these words mean to me? Because choose love, be the light, change the world. It's a calling. You are making a statement that you are going to live your life differently from other people. So don't say it because I say it. Say it because you believe it. Say it because you mean it. Say it because you're going to do it. But most importantly, say it because Jesus is depending on you. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org.
For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.